This is Scott Becker with a special episode of the Becker Private Equity Podcast and the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. We're here today visiting with Neil Goldstein. Neil's a brilliant healthcare attorney who spends a lot of time in the physician practice area, and particularly in the physician practice private equity area. He's going to talk to us today about What's going on in that area? There's been an aggregation of physician practices. There's maybe been some slowing down of the consolidation of physician practices, at least from private equity. Well, well certainly there's been lots of growth from Optum, uh, attempted growth from CVS and Walgreens and Amazon. But Neil will give us a much better sense of what he's seeing out there. Neil, can you take a moment to introduce yourself? And then we'll talk about the subject of the day, which is sort of private equity physician practices and more. Neil? Sure. Thank you, Scott. I'm Neil Goldstein. Uh, I'm an attorney, a healthcare attorney in Chicago. Um, my practice is uh, I'm almost exclusively representing physicians, physician groups, and companies that do business with uh, physicians and physician groups. Um, I've uh, been practicing now for oh, about 30 plus years, and I uh, have a lot of experience dealing with physician groups consolidating and lately in the last several years with private equity acquiring uh, physician practices. So, yeah, Thank you. Just by background, Neil had also represented the largest physician group in Illinois for decades, brilliant, brilliant lawyer. Neil, tell us what's happening in the practice private equity transaction world with physicians today. What's, what's, give us a sense of what's going on currently. Sure. So it's still um, going at a pretty good pace, although I, uh, I do get the sense that um, it isn't, it's slowing down a little bit, and there's some factors that have contributed to that that I can talk about in a bit. But in the last 10 uh, years, it's it's been going at a pace that we've never seen before. Um, there was a lot of this type of activity in the late 1990s with physician practice management companies that were acquiring and rolling up physician practices, but the currency for those transactions was stock in the PPMC. Here, the currency is mostly cash um, and some rollover equity or, or stock in the new entity. And so it's really, last year in particular was an incredibly busy year, I think, for a lot of practitioners because I believe that the private equity firm saw that the, that the window um, for acquiring practices was gonna start tightening and, and that has happened. Um, so now, it's as I said. It's still um, it's still happening. It's not going at the breakneck speed that it once did, and I think that there the private equity firms are being more discerning, I should say, um, in acquiring these practices for a number of reasons. Thank you. Now, there are specific areas, specialties where there's more activity than others. What do you see out there? I know you've been very busy in orthopedics, urology, some other areas. Where are you seeing more versus less? Are there certain specialties that are more interesting to private equity versus others? What's your sense of what you're seeing? Sure. So there's definitely urology, orthopedics. Um, there is uh, dermatology is still uh, an active industry. Ophthalmology, OBGYN, pain management. Those are the ones that come to mind. You don't really see too much of um, cardiology or plastic surgery or multi-specialty. There's some pediatrics, but I, I would say the ones that I mentioned before, 
ophthalmology, dermatology, urology, orthopedics, those are the ones where there's uh, still a lot of activity. And part of the reason for that is that there's a, a very good opportunity for growth and ancillary services in those specialties that might not be available in you know, traditional multi-specialty or even internal medicine. And talk a little bit about the private equity model usually relies on, you know, to do the acquisition, they end up using some leverage, some debt, and so forth. As margins get tighter, how concerning is the amount of leverage and debt that's used? How do you sort of look at some of those things? Sure. So that's probably the biggest uh, driver to the slowdown in deal activity. And so it's basically the, the interest rates. As interest rates have gone up, the margins for the private equity firms on their deals are decreasing. When I did my first private equity deal, it was in 2007. I'd never really done, I mean, I knew about the concept, but it was the first time I had ever done one. And I was amazed because it's called private equity, but it, it's really not private equity, meaning that the private equity buyer is using um, loans, debt, uh, in many cases, institutional debt, and leveraging the assets of practice to fund the acquisition. That's what makes um, the numbers work. There's nothing wrong with it. That's a very customary way for uh, mergers and acquisitions to happen. But what's happening in the um, physician space now is really two things. Number one, deal activity is, is low because, again, the margins are lower. And secondly, some of this debt is not necessarily fixed at interest rates. So maybe the interest rates vary, or maybe the loan has um, had a fixed term where the interest rate was fixed, but then turned to variable. And so what's happening with all of that is it's throwing all of the spreadsheets awry because the numbers that were projected aren't turning out to be the case today because that line item interest expense is is kind of going through the roof. And, and talk about, our, we've seen some practice management firms actually end up with bankruptcy problems or blowing up, you know, debt ended up much higher, their earnings ended up much lower than projected, but there's not yet been an avalanche of that 30 plus years ago, and sadly enough, you and I are both old enough to remember this, there were a ton of privately, publicly traded practice management companies that ultimately went, went broke as they couldn't retain physicians, they couldn't retain earnings, and they had lots of leverage, and a lot of them were public and went broke. This time, there's not been quite that amount of, of challenges, but what do you see on the horizon? Are there, are there significant challenges? Are there more deals to be done? What's your sort of sense of what you see going forward? I think that there are going to be a lot of headwinds that the PE firms are going to face, whether it's with their uh, existing portfolio or doing deals in the future. And I'll talk about those head, headwinds in a second, but you raise an interesting point, which is, what happens if the the management company or the actual the platform company what if it uh if it goes bankrupt what happens then and because of the presence of lenders that are involved you you face the real possibility that the pe firm walks away from the investment and then the lender takes it over and the lender taking over the practice is in a, a real tough situation because it's difficult to manage a physician practice. And so they're coming in and taking over that asset. It's not like foreclosing on real estate. You're 
uh, you're taking over for closing on a very robust, uh, a very diverse organization. And so the lenders are faced with taking over that as, as collateral and then how do they manage it? That's the first problem. The second problem that they're facing is that lenders aren't going to want to be in the business of managing physicians. They've already seen that that didn't go well. And so what is their strategy for trying to recover their loan amount? And there's a couple, there's a few options. They're selling the group. Well, you know, good luck to, with that. The environment is becoming more challenging. The second is to try to reconstitute it. Um, well, how do you reconstitute it? What does that look like when you've got doctors that own rollover equity and there's tax issues that are involved and you have a bunch of angry physicians because even though they got cash out of the first transaction, they had rollover equity. Sometimes it's as much as 30 to 50% of what they, um, of the purchase price that they received. Well, now that's worth nothing. And so how are you going to manage a very uh, angry constituency? And then the third option, and, and this is where I think um, it's a possibility. It's just my opinion. I haven't seen any evidence of it, but it may be that the lenders just say, well, uh, I, I have to get something out of this. And maybe my best strategy is to unwind all of these acquisitions, help these physician groups to get back on their feet as independent practices or practices that are sold to the hospitals, let's just say, and to recover something, even if it's five cents, 10 cents on the dollar, it's better than nothing. And especially if you have a number of practices that, that would unwind, it could mean a, a sizable contribution to their um, exposure. So those are the various um, things that could happen when a lender takes it over. Um, I could talk about the headwinds now, or, or do you want to interpose before I do? Yeah, let's take a second there, just because the lenders don't want to, often lenders, I shouldn't say work in mysterious ways, but they all don't always want to take a loss at the opposite time for multiple different reasons. The, the bank itself might not want to write the loss. The person in charge of the account might want not, not want to be viewed as having taken that loss. So sometimes lenders hold on to these things a lot longer than they should, even though it doesn't really make any sense because they don't know what else to do and they don't want to show, show the write down on their own books. Uh, even after having taken it over from the private equity fund. But what, what a uh, mess of a situation. What are some of the headwinds that you're seeing and how likely are some of those to come to fruition? There are, um, well, I'll start with, uh, with government, with the government. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the uh, Fraud and Compliance Forum for American Health Law Association. And I uh, heard from a bunch of government uh, personnel, whether it's with the FTC or DOJ, HHS. And what I heard in a number of sessions was that the government is looking very closely at private equity ownership in physician practices. Now, I knew about, and we know about that on the antitrust side, there was just a, um, an announcement about a month ago where the FTC is looking at an anesthesia Roll up um, that's possibly violating the Sherman Act, and there's uh, there was an announcement. There's been a lot written about that, so the antitrust didn't come as a surprise, although it did a month ago when this first came out. But on the fraud and abuse side, what I heard from a, a, a number of government people was that they view the private equity world as providing uh, incentives that are 
potentially triggering of, of, false, of the False Claims Act or the Anti-Kickback Statute, that the temptation to try to maximize revenue could lead to uh, improper illegal billing practices. Those pressures are always there in any setting, but especially when you have a private equity firm that's looking for a return on, on their investment. And then just the ordinary anti-kickback stuff that you and I deal with, where something that seems completely appropriate in, in a non-healthcare setting is illegal. It, it violates the anti-kickback statute in the healthcare setting. Well, when you're when you have a private equity firm that perhaps doesn't have as much experience in healthcare, the mindset that they're bringing to it is, well, I can do this kind of referral fee or I can do this kind of uh, joint venture in the non-healthcare world, what's the problem here? And so those two things are, and probably many others, are causing the government to really look closely at these things. Now, they're not gonna let on, and they didn't let on at this conference about what things, uh, what specific companies or industries that they're looking at, but I was just surprised how many times it came up. So you have those uh, two things. Um, another thing that's legal related, although not government related, although it could be, are what's going on with non-competes. Um, so non-competes are, are under attack. Um, we, we see it with uh, the federal government. We see it in the state of Illinois, where um, there was a change in the statute uh, about a year ago that made um, it more difficult to enforce non-competes and also opened the door to striking down a non-compete on public policy grounds. And so if non-competes go away, then the, a lot of what's keeping the doctors um, to stay with the private equity-backed practice, a lot of that will go out the window. Now, some of it will survive because to the extent it relates to the purchase agreement itself, that probably will withstand it. But if there's a whole sea change in non-competes and non-competes go away for physicians, then that's going to be a, a big problem for private equity. No, no, no. I mean, the things you're talking about, sort of the antitrust issues, the fraud and abuse issues, the non-compete issues, all make it harder for, for private equity to invest in these areas because the concerns that the rules will change on them. You know, in some ways, private equity, from a Washington perspective, becomes sort of a, 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 a boogeyman in some ways. And it's sometimes not really a thoughtful that they're, I mean, they're investors like anybody else's investors, you know, and, and so it's a fascinating sort of perspective on it from a Washington perspective. And the non-compete issue has been sort of floating through the FTC as well. It'll be fascinating to see how that comes out. Other headwinds in terms of just economics as well as legal and regulatory, other things that you're watching? Yes. Um, so this, I think, is the, uh, the other major headwind, which is the second by transaction. Um, so the way these deals are structured, as we know, is that the, uh, the selling physician gets cash and rollover equity. And the, the goal is that for the PE firm to sell in this uh, so-called second by transaction, so that the physicians and obviously the private equity firm do very well on that on that transaction. And, and the goal, someone once told me, was that to receive on your rollover equity, which perhaps was 20 to 30 percent of the purchase price, to achieve as much cash from that than you did from the original deal where you were getting 70 to 80 percent in cash. And so 
that those second byte transactions are starting to happen more and more. Why? Because the funds that the private equity firms are using to acquire these physician practices, they have a fixed life, five years, seven years. So at some point, whether the PE firm wants to do it or not, they're forced to sell, to, to make a sale on, um, for that second byte transaction. And so now uh, we're seeing that more and more because if this whole wave started in the early 2010s, well, you're, we're starting to see those second byte transactions happen and perhaps happen with more frequency. Well, the second byte transaction comes in, the second buyer has purchased the practice, and what do they find? Well, first of all, their interest rates are higher than what the original deal was structured upon. But what they're potentially finding is that the cost savings, the, the efficiencies, the economies of scale that make an aggregation so attractive, that a lot of that has been um, realized or squeezed out of the practice. And a lot of the growth, and where does the growth come from? The growth comes from rolling up other physician practices. But that's plateaued and that's reached a peak. And so now where you have the second buyer come in, they realize that, that they overpaid because on paper it might have looked fine, but they weren't perhaps looking at the tea leaves and they're seeing that they have an asset that is really not going to appreciate much, um, but it's only going to get more costly and more difficult to try to manage. And so I think that when we see physician practices that are um, struggling and perhaps going into some kind of workout or, or bankruptcy, I think you're going to see it more on the second buy transaction because there just simply isn't the margins. There aren't the margins that there are in the first transaction. So essentially, the physicians that were hoping that they'd leave some of their equity in the practice, 30 40%, sometimes more, sometimes less, are hoping that that would have lots of value. And the projections were, you know, this thing was worth $30 million to begin with. Now it'll be worth $60 million, so your equity is going to be worth twice as much or three times as much or whatever it is. It, that's not coming to play because margins are tighter than they were three to five years ago. Interest rates are a lot higher, so it's harder to get to that quote-unquote second bite, which is really the chance to sell second part of your equity after your first part of after your first part of the transaction several years later and it's becoming harder to monetize that at the right price and thus you have disappointed physicians as well correct the right price and and for those transactions that have actually happened it's hard for the investment itself to remain profitable anything else that you're watching closely i mean there's obviously a shortage of physicians so the ability for physicians to get out of non-competes and do another deal is probably attractive because there's just a shortage of because there's just not enough physicians more and more, not that they're necessarily getting paid as they should for that supply and demand issue. But anything else that you're watching closely, Neil, that our listeners should be aware of? And then can you tell the listeners also on the Becker's Healthcare Podcast, the Becker Private Equity Podcast, where they could find Neil Goldstein? Okay. Well, the other thing that I've been watching is to see if whatever remaining physicians or physician groups that are out there that are still running smaller practices or solo practices, whether what's happening in the marketplace is causing uh, the remaining uh, independents to come together. And there is some uh, activity with that. I have seen and I've heard from colleagues around the country that there still is some of that left. But the problem is, is that in a way, those aggregators, those physician groups that are merging together, 
they're competing with the PE firms who can put a lot of money on the table to make it more attractive to the doctors to give up some of the autonomy in order to come together. And so it's going to be, in, in my opinion, it's going to be very tough to aggregate these practices without a PE partner as long as PE is still in the picture. The other issue is, is that when there was a lot of consolidation with the groups that I represented in the early 2000s, there was always something, a tangible benefit that you could point to that was financial. So with the OBGYNs, it was coming together would save them an incredible amount in malpractice premiums. With orthopedics, it was having the scale to be able to support MRI, PT, urology was a pathology lab. Well, those opportunities, some of those are already being done at the local level, but to the remaining practices that are out there, there isn't that opportunity as much to have ancillary revenue or to have like a, a win right off the bat. And so what it, what it takes is that it takes incredible foresight to, for the doctors to see the what I'll call the boring things of businesses that make business profitable, the, having a strong infrastructure, a management team, not uh, keeping retained earnings in the practice, all of those things that have a, a tremendous amount of um, return to it, but it's long-term return. And in today's uncertain environment, it's very hard to be patient. So where I'm going with all of that is that I don't know that we're going to see the consolidation. Again, there is some talk about it, but it's going to be very difficult to see. And so what will happen with those practices if, if they can't come together and if um, you know, private equity slows down, one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to have to kind of double down and really make their smaller independent practice profitable, which depending on the specialty can definitely happen, or they're going to go work for the hospital, which many independent uh, practices would just be completely opposed to, but they may not have a choice. So we'll see what happens. Um, it's a very interesting time, and there's a lot of things happening, but um, it's there's a lot unknown, too. You know, it's so funny because we, we've seen some of these you're talking about, some of these small practices that can't quite, especially in mid-rural, mid-suburban areas, there's not a lot of population, they can't recruit additional physicians in some of these spots. They're in a very hard time staying independent. And just as you talked about, close colleagues in uh, you know, one of the cities in Arizona just ended up after 30 years joining the local hospital. And, and we felt like they had no other options but to do that if they wanted to keep on practicing. And so your point is very well taken on sort of this very challenging environment for physicians and small groups and so forth versus larger groups and, and, and so on. Neil, again, Neil Goldstein, partner at Patrick Frank Samotny, brilliant high integrity, great lawyer. Neil, thank you so much for joining us today on the Becker Self-Care Podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure. Take care.